how faith and sin are each generated by where our hope is placed, continuing of that, that theme. Today I want to look at the subject of bitterness. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself. So how often can I avenge myself? Leave it, this is interesting, leave it to the wrath of God. A lot of people don't even believe in the wrath of God anymore. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, I will repay, says the Lord. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and the reason... Peter's stressing that right there is he wants to make it clear to this persecuted congregation to whom he writes that whatever suffering Jesus experienced, it wasn't his fault. Okay? He committed no sin. He didn't do anything wrong. Neither was defeat found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But look at this sentence. But he continued entrusting himself. We're talking about where you put your hope. Continued entrusting himself to him who, who judges justly. Ephesians 4, 32 to 5, 2. Is this on the screen up there behind me? Let's read these two verses, these several verses. Read them out loud together. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Beautiful verses. 544, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. One more. Strive for peace with everyone. It's not going to be easy. That's what that verb means. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So the holiness that he's talking about is is this holiness. It's striving for peace. See to it that no one... We, we, we know that because of the way he continues. See to it that this is a striking sentence. No one fails to obtain the grace of God. I mean, I thought that's what grace was. It's just free. It's just given. How can you miss it? You don't earn it. How can you fail to obtain it? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and and causes trouble and by it look at this many become defiled let's pray when we see warnings repeated verse after verse after verse and writer after writer after writer Paul, Peter, Jesus, when they all say the same thing and they caution us about being careful, then then we know that we have a propensity to commit the kind of sin they're warning about.
if there's one thing we know for sure, it's this. We don't want, I don't want, we don't want as a church to miss out on the grace of God. To miss out on the grace of God. We want your grace lavished and experienced in our lives. And so this sin of bitterness needs to be studied. Come Holy Spirit and help us as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. That single verse I read from Matthew 5.44, however challenging it sounds, you know, pray for those, bless and pray for those who despitefully use you. It's, it's really the least striking part of the teaching of Jesus in that particular setting of Matthew 5. When the words about blessing and praying for those who persecute us, when they're read in their context, we can see that Jesus, he wasn't just talking about something good Christians should do. Try and be like this. He was actually saying there was no possibility of following him at all. Apart from this um, radically self-denying attitude toward bitterness and revenge. You can see that when you look at the context around Matthew 5.44. Like, look at Matthew 5.44 to 48. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. This sounds like works, doesn't it? Do this so that... You may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? He's not saying that there's no reward, but it's the same reward that these people, and they didn't have a very good reputation. The pagans, the crooked tax collector. You get, you'll get a reward for loving those who love you. It's the same reward that these people get. In other words, you get companionship. You, people will like you. There's that. Keep reading. And if you greet only your brothers... What are you doing more than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be, must be perfect. How many, how many feel something disqualifying in that? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not in all of his moral perfection. Perfect in the way that he just described. He makes his, he makes his reign come on the just and on the unjust. There's, there's, a, there's a graciousness to God, to everybody. They all get better than they deserve. So Jesus makes his point very clear. The measuring stick of being sons and daughters of God at all, it isn't my love for the people who are nice to me. It isn't my love for people in my income bracket. Isn't my love for people who make me feel good about myself. The measuring stick is, is my love. My gracious, forgiving love to people who genuinely, completely, totally without excuse, flat out wrong and hurt me. 
how you treat them proves whether you are a son or daughter of God. This would be a great place just for an altar call, wouldn't it? So the premise of this whole series is that both sin and righteousness are increased by where I place my hope. That's the, that's the underlying premise. It's really the premise of that great hymn, though we don't always think of it, the solid rock. I don't know if you noticed it. It's not a hymn about doctrine. It's a, it's a hymn about hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So it's not just about knowing that and agreeing with a creedal statement of faith. It's about your, your hope being there. I long, you long for satisfaction, security, joy. And God offers these, and so does the fallen world. Each, each, God, Satan, think of it that way. Each offers a promise for my future. There's the false promise of sin for my future satisfaction, for my security, and that's what makes sin tempting. Nobody sins out of duty. We sin out of tempting desire. All of this to say that where I build my hope for satisfaction, security, and joy, where I place my hope, that will determine my growth in holiness or my growth in sin and addiction. But there's, there's, there's a problem. And the problem is hope isn't something I can just turn on and off at will like a radio. There are tools that the devil uses to deflect my hope from God to something else. We've been studying these tools for about five weeks now. There are attitudes of heart and mind that are not only wrong, but which open the door of my life. By drawing my hope toward them, they open my life up to all sorts of future addictive, destructive patterns of self rather than God. There's a reason Satan works this way. The devil's primary uh, activity isn't just to cause Don Horbin to commit sin. Maybe you've been taught that since you were a kid. That's not his primary and it's not his primary task. Not just to get me to commit some kind of an act of sin. That would just be a partial victory. He wants his triumph over Don Horbin to be much more complete, much more certain. He, he wants to orient my life around false hopes. And there's a reason for that. Satan is not omnipresent. God is omnipresent. Satan wants to direct my life to all sorts of false hopes so that even when he's not around to tempt me directly, I will self-destruct on my own. You see it? I will self-destruct on my own by placing my hope in things that can't satisfy but which tempt. That's a much more effective victory for the devil. If he can place my hope 
off of Christ and his promise. If he can place my hope elsewhere, and we've looked at four or five different things, then he can go and leave me alone and I'll just mess up forever. That's the goal. That's the goal. Today we're going to look at one more tool the devil uses to lock our lives into future bondage that we can't even see yet. One more tool of the devil to shift our hope from God to self. Bitterness. Point number one. Unlike individual acts of disobedience, Bitterness, like, here's what we've looked at, like pride, impatience, anxiety, covetousness. Bitterness actually changes the inward direction of my heart long term. I get that in Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Strive for peace with everyone. And for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So so it's possible to fail to obtain the grace of God, and this root of bitterness is what is what will do that. It's that word defiled that needs to jump out. I mean, all sin brings guilt. We get that. All sin breaks God's law. I think we get that. But there are certain sins that don't just break a command. They, they change my inward moral compass. They, they change the way I think. They defile in a way that is, well, it's like a dangerous chemical in a town's water supply. Some sins pollute even when you're not thinking about them anymore. And bitterness is one of them. Bitterness is one of them. And that's why the writer of Hebrews, he lists bitterness as not just a sin, but a defiling sin. It, It makes everything else about me Dirty. Contaminated. Even if I were preaching good sermons. That's because of the way in which bitterness generates itself in our minds. Bitterness is the one sin that feels the least sinful when it's being committed. Especially if someone has really wronged me. If I've been genuinely and deeply hurt, genuinely wronged, undeservedly so, the more deeply I've been undeservedly hurt, the more my bitterness feels like justice. It feels like justice. And nobody repents for being just. Right? Repenting of bitterness... In the face of a genuine wrongdoing, it feels like repenting of justice. And this is where the craftiness of the devil shines. I mean, because of the 
potential of bitterness to be a justified sin, or at the very least, an ignored sin, it has an easy time gaining momentum in my heart, gaining momentum in a church. He says, many become defiled. Because it feels just, it has an easy time gaining momentum. I mean, catch a Christian molesting a child, and he's toast in any sane church. Steal money out of the offering plate. They'll take away your membership. But anger in the face of someone who has done me wrong, that will feel like justice in the minds of many churchgoers. So bitterness gains a momentum most sins can't possibly achieve. It has the potential, says the writer of Hebrews, to defile many because it, it just sits and percolates. Because bitterness doesn't feel like sin, when I've been genuinely wrong, I can carry it around in my heart for a long time. The sin has time to set. You're sitting there having communion. Trey goes by. You've got a nice, brand new, white shirt on. got the little polo logo there and the person passes the tray and as they do they're a little shaky and it bumps and you got grape juice all down your shirt now fortunately you're sitting beside your wife they all do this there's something they open up in their purse i don't know where they get it and there's there's a tide pen is that just a requirement of the female gender? You have to have a tied pen? I, I was in a restaurant with all of our family in Minneapolis last two summers ago, and, and I got something on my shirt, and, and Rini, her sister Brenda, my sister-in-law Paula, all whip up. They're attacking me with these orange pens. Here's the thing. Is it easier to get it out right away? Or is it better to let the shirt sit there for six months? We all know, once something has time to set, you can't get it out. Bitterness feels like justice. You can carry it around a long time. You can listen to sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. Oh, yeah, but Pastor Don, you don't, you don't know what my family's been through, what they did. And it just sets. And you can't get it out. You can't get it out. Point number two. Whether we think it through or not, the defiling power of bitterness comes from the way it shifts my hope from God. I don't think this idea gets processed by as many Christians as should process it. But it's clearly said in Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is, it is mine to revenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So, so, think of it this way. You'll remember it this way. When you hold a grudge... 
You stopped the judge. Clever, eh? Bitterness is the response of a heart that no longer hopes in God's promise to deal with those who wrong me. Bitterness is always, first and foremost, unbelief. It says that this, that's not true. I, I, can't, I can't count on leaving room for God's wrath. My hope is getting even now. See how hope plays into this? Where your hope is. In the very same way, hoping in God's promise, that's the antidote to bitterness. I mean, think about this. You need more than forgiveness for bitterness. You need a powerful antidote. So the forgiveness you receive doesn't just result in repeating the same sin down the road. And it, it, it's just a habitual response. Paul says, God has a promise. Let me try and clean this up. Bit of a mess. Okay. God has a promise for you when you've been unjustly treated by another Christian. Paul says you can actually place your hope in what is written. Right there. It's in here. It's a promise. God gives you a promise. You can actually place your hope there. You can, you can leave room for God's wrath. God sees, God knows all about the way others are treating you. He will settle all the uneven scores in life. I can forgive, I can forget with no thought of retaliation because nobody commits any sin that is ignored by God. That promise is repeated over and over again in the scriptures. I was looking at 2 Thessalonians. Paul writes and says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. And look what he says. This is evidence of the Righteous judgment of God. They're, they're just enduring. Okay? That's all they're doing. They're just enduring it. Patiently enduring it. And he says that's evidence that they trust in, they hope in the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Let me do another slide. Since indeed God considers it just to... Did you know those words are in your New Testament? To repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So, so this repaying, it's not happening right now. They're just enduring, they're just waiting, but it's going to come. So, so when the Lord Jesus is revealed, that's going to happen. Justice, judgment, everything set right. You can see this even more clearly in the book of Revelation. Particularly at the destruction of Babylon. 
that, that picture of the world's system in rebellion against God. Revelation 18, 16, and 20. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So, part of my hope in God... Part of it is relying on his plan to deal not just with my sins. That's what we usually think about. He has a plan not just to deal with my sins, but the sins of those who mistreat me as well. Hoping in God means letting him be God over those who wrong me. Leaving room for God to be God. Jesus came and died full of grace, love, mercy, and also modeling the kind of hope in God. What it looks like when it's treated abysmally by others. Jesus modeled that for us in 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23. Just a little bit more and we're done. He, that's Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. That, that's what vengeance is. It's returning. Calculating. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But, here's the verb, continued entrusting. Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, so my anger and bitterness, it isn't holy and it isn't just. It's unbelief. It's not placing my hope in Father God. I really don't trust that God has a future for those who wrong me. He has that in his hand. If I place my hope there, I will rest in that. Good enough. Three. Pastor Don, what if the people who wrong me are Christians? How can I be sure God isn't going to get soft-hearted and just forgive them? Gee, wouldn't that be? God's grace is something we like when we get it. We're not crazy about it when our enemies get it. How do I know God isn't just going to forgive? Isn't that just like him? To do something like that. To forgive my enemies. And we kind of laugh at those Jonah-like words. Remember Jonah after he went to Nineveh? And he, I knew you were going to do that. I knew it. You were just going to forgive those people. Hate it when God does that. There's a little bit of, there's a little bit of us in that. There's something in every one of us that is honestly bugged when the people who wrong us get grace and pardon instead of what they deserve. We don't want to get what we deserve. But I want my enemy getting what he deserves. It's time for us to nail this down. 
God has two ways of dealing with all sin. Every sin that has ever been committed or every sin that ever will be committed to the end of time, God has two ways of dealing with all sin. A, tragically, some will have their unrepentant, stubborn hearts punished eternally in hell for wrongs they've committed in this world. I've already looked at some of the passages. I don't need to work through them again. I think I gave you three or four. B, here's the other way. Those who honestly confess and repent of their sin are graciously and freely forgiven. So so Jesus came and spilled his blood to identify with fallen, guilty sinners. He died in their place. Forgiveness is granted if they will repent and place their hope in him. He did the same for you and for me, by the way. But the important point here is that sin is never ignored. All sin. All sin is taken care of. All sin is fully judged. Romans 3.26. Paul says, To declare, I say it, this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Just and justifier. So, so God is just because he never ignores sin, not any sin. He never leaves any sin unpunished, and that includes any and all sin that has ever been committed by you and all sin that has ever been committed against you. He's covered all those sins. All the sins committed by you and all the sins committed against you. Some of those wrongs will be judged when Jesus comes again. The rest of those wrongs, the ones committed by you and the ones committed against you, the rest of them have been judged in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. We know that because the writer says he didn't commit any sins of his own. He died for other sins. Which sins? Well, mine. And mine against you and yours and yours against me. All of them. All of them were paid for there. I don't have to extract any payment from you. You don't have to extract any payment from me. That's the holiness the writer of Hebrews talks about, without which no one will see the Lord. Well, that's my problem, Pastor Don. I'm mad at Joe for what he's done. I'm not mad at Jesus. I just want justice. I don't want Jesus paying for Joe's sin against me. I want Joe paying for Joe's sin against me. Fair is fair. Really? You want to go down that road with God? It's a very common attitude. And here's what you should do. Let me give you an exercise for everybody. Homework. Here's what you should do when you find bitterness and unforgiveness and vengeance still lingering in your heart. Bring that to the communion table. We have it more often than most evangelical churches. Frequently, we'll have it twice a month. Not always, but frequently. Once in the morning and another time at night. And let me suggest that just for once, just for once, come to the communion table and don't think about your sins at all. Come thinking about your enemy's sins. Okay? Just think about your enemy's sins. And then think about Jesus 
Think about his broken body. Think of the crown of thorns. Think of the spear that they took. Dirty, sharp spear. Rammed it in his side. Spikes driven through wrists and ankles. Think of the marvel of the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. All for that enemy of yours, he did that. And then, just as the cup is coming to your lips, just close your eyes and pray this little prayer. And just say, I'm sorry, Lord. I know all you went through for my enemy's sins, but that just won't quite do. I'm so upset with my brother that what you accomplished will not quite make up for how he has treated me. I'm sorry, that's not quite adequate. Well, Pastor Don, I'd never, I'd never say that. Sure you would. Sure you would. In fact, every week that goes by and you don't forgive that brother from your heart, that's exactly what you said to God. You just didn't process it. That's exactly what you said. No, that's not quite enough. Last point. Last page, honest, I promise. Bitterness is overcome not only by trusting God's promise to avenge wrongs done against me. That's part of it. It is overcome by cherishing the experience of being forgiven by God myself. And that's where we read these words from Ephesians. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. This isn't about God's forgiveness now. This is about you and me. Forgiving one another. But here's, here's how. As, so there's the connector, as God in Christ forgave you. Do it like that. And be imitators of God. As beloved children. Walk in love. How? Well, as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering. So let me give you just that simple test of your growth in Jesus. It isn't... It isn't uh, what a lot of people think. You know you're growing in the Lord when you move past understanding just the theology of forgiveness to actually enjoying being an agent of forgiveness. Not enjoying your forgiveness, but being an agent of forgiveness. The same kind, Paul says, the same kind that you have been granted in Jesus. In other words, in other words you'll, you'll know you're a son or daughter of God when you're not just a receiver of grace, but a transmitter of the very same kind. I mean, we all want to be godly. So we say. Get this sentence. You will never never be more Christ-like than when you forgive someone who has wronged you. You will never 
be more Christ-like than when you forgive someone who has wronged you. And everyone said, I was waiting for you to say, ouch. But amen is, amen is, it's good. <laughs>